All right. Welcome to episode 70 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. David Brendel. He co-founded Strategy of Mind as a psychiatrist, certified executive coach, leadership specialist, and philosophical counselor. And he's based in Boston. Uh, welcome, Dr. Brendel. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. And so, David, how we found out about you was through philosophical counseling. So, um, so through a friend of mine named Sky Cleary. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, can you tell us a little bit about your philosophical counseling career and what sort of spurred your interest in it? Yeah, definitely. Well, I've had a very longstanding interest in philosophy and integrating it with my interests in uh, neuroscience, psychology, and in particular, psychiatry. Mm. So I, I always wanted to study philosophy, but also go to medical school. So I always was struggling between am I a humanities person or am I a science person? So I, I ended up doing both. I, I studied philosophy in college, but I also did my pre-med science classes. Then I went to medical school, but interrupted my medical training, moved to Chicago and did a PhD in philosophy. Then I came back to psychiatric training, but then I interrupted again and did an, uh, an ethics fellowship. So I've, I've kind of woven back and forth between philosophy of mind, philosophy of science, existentialism, pragmatism, medical ethics. And uh, so I have a, a very strong interest in the theoretical side of philosophy, but most of my career has involved applying philosophy uh, to working with people uh, across a, you know, a, whole, a whole spectrum, some with uh, mental illness, in some cases, severe mental illness, in other cases, more mild, uh, and also people that are uh, dealing with stress and burnout and uh, trying to find their path in their careers. And in, uh, in many cases, I work with um, executive level people, CEOs in my executive coaching practice. So that's, that's the context to answer your question about the philosophical counseling. Um, about, about eight or nine years ago, I was looking to further diversify my practice because I hadn't diversified it enough, I guess, just yet. Um, between philosophy and psychiatry and uh, everything else I was doing. But I, I, again, with my longstanding interest in philosophy and how to apply it in the everyday human realm, um, I started reading a lot about what philosophical counseling is, and then I went ahead and did a certification program in it. Interesting. And so how do you see the two converge, mental health and philosophy? Because I mean, often I'm assuming you get these sort of statements too in these comments where people say, well, I don't understand how I can use philosophy. Like, what's the point of, you know, thinking about the cosmos or the beginnings of the world? Like, how does this matter to my life? Yeah. Well, in, in, there are different approaches to philosophy. So some of it may be about the cosmos, it's metaphysics and epistemology. And some of it is extremely theoretical and hard to understand and hard to penetrate. Uh, a lot of people, you know, they were afraid of their philosophy classes in college. They're just too complicated and uh, esoteric. Um, at least one part of philosophy and the part that I'm really interested in is, you know, what's, what's the point of everything? Why does it matter? Why do I get up in the morning? What's the purpose of it all? So looking for meaning and, um, and values uh, and sources of fulfillment and joy and spirituality and connectedness with other people and um, dynamics, forces, powers beyond ourselves. Those are all questions for philosophy as well. And it can be put into very ordinary language. You know? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? What's the point of it all? Uh, why are you racing around trying to make more money? You know, so slowing down, stopping and reflecting is part of philosophy. It's also part of psychology, psychotherapy and psychiatry. So that, that's one area where they all converge is around questions about uh, meaning and values. Mm -hmm. um, do you talk about with your clients um, about metacognition, like uh, what kind of mindset they're operating from or maybe what would be uh, most optimal for them? Yeah, that's a very big part of it that, that links up with uh, you know, my, my comments about um, values and, and meaning. So 
this is true again in the uh, it's true in the philosophical counseling realm it's true with executive coaching it's true with psychotherapy what are you thinking why do you think it and would you like to change how you think about it those are those are good questions in any in any of those areas but the approach to asking those questions and fostering dialogue is a little bit different in each case and, and metacognition does come in, uh, in in all the different realms. So in psychiatry, uh, sometimes people are really depressed and their thoughts are deeply pessimistic, um, severely self-critical in some cases. Uh, sometimes it goes to an extreme of delusions, paranoia, suicidal thinking, and part of the job of the psychiatrist in addition to diagnosing and maybe prescribing medications, most fundamentally is fostering a dialogue about tell me the details of what you're thinking and how might we work on changing that together if you want. Uh, in very severe cases, you may have to just intervene and somebody has to go into the hospital, possibly even involuntarily. But in the vast majority of cases, the the project is to form, uh, form a close and trusting connection with somebody and uh, get a conversation going where people are looking at their cognitive states and how to possibly change them in a, in a systematic way. That's kind of the fundamental aspect of cognitive therapy, which is uh, part of what I do in my, uh, in my psychiatry practice. It's often coupled with behavior therapy, and that's where we get CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, where the focus is more on behaviors than on mindset. But it's often the combination of those two that uh, that propels people forward to uh, change, feel better, and be able to live their lives in the way they choose. Right. So that's kind of metacognition in, in psychiatry, and then you can also look at it within executive coaching, which in, uh, in leadership development work, which is a lot of what I do. Uh, somebody may get a promotion from being an individual contributor in their job. Now they have to manage a team and um, be more strategic and more visionary in their work and they're stuck in the weeds. And so there, there are cognitive states about that also. Some cases it might be, well, I have to do all the work here because I'm the one that knows it best and I don't trust these other people. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you were just promoted into a managerial or leadership role. So you have to, probably if you want to succeed, you have to stop doing that. Uh, so that may be another area where metacognition comes in. Yeah. Uh, what, what are you thinking? How is that working? Step outside of those cognitive states and take a, a broader look at your roles and responsibilities. And, and sometimes it, it involves significant changes in mindset to propel yourself into a leadership role. Mm. So in a leadership position, you would be encouraging um, people on your team and, uh, to be able to find the answers themselves, right? Because the, since you've upgraded your position, it, it's no longer your uh, role to sort of do the grunt work. It's sort of to make sure that everybody else is doing what they're supposed to be doing and then whatever is assigned to your particular role, right? You can't, you can't behave at the old uh, paradigm. You'd have to you'd have to upgrade your, your mindset, so to speak. Uh, I think that's, that's well said. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the best books in the executive coaching realm on this topic, you don't even have to read it, you just have to know the title, it kind of says it all. Um, it's by Marshall Goldsmith and the, the title is What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Uh, so for many people that have been um, promoted into leadership roles, they're really good at some technical job that they've done previously. Mm -hmm. So somebody may be really good at writing code, great software engineer. Well, you're so great at writing code that now we're going to have you manage and oversee a group of 30 people internationally. Okay, well, <laughs> never trained to do that. That has nothing to do with writing code. Mm -hmm. uh, I've worked with you know great physicians, great surgeons, 30 years in practice, well, now we want you to be on the executive team for the hospital. Well, that's, that has nothing to do with surgery. It's a completely different skill set and a different mindset. So what got you here to this position of being on the executive team isn't going to get you there to actually being a successful leader. It's true in almost every field. A great lawyer now becomes a managing partner 
for, for a big firm. You, you can look in almost any area of business or professional uh, pursuits and you see the same dynamic going on. So it's, it's, it's you know, right along the lines of what, what you said, you've got to change how you think about it. Uh, surgeons are experts, they're the leader, they, they're kind of telling other people what to do, right? Hand me the scalpel, put in the IV. There's a lot of um, appropriate order given. In, in, uh, th there's a collaborative aspect to it, but there's a clear, uh, there's a clear hierarchy. <clears throat> when you get into the executive realm, it's much more about how you show up in meetings, how well you listen, uh, uh, having a collaborative spirit, at, you know, ex expressing that you may not know something and need to seek consultation. There's a different timeline for problems to be solved. Uh, a, a strategic question for a <clears throat> a large company or a hospital system is very different than uh, taking care of a patient in the in the moment. <clears throat> so it's a very different skill set, and um, so a lot of what I do in that work is again, it's very cognitive. Understand what your beliefs uh, and presumptions are about your role, and figure out how they need to change proactively. <clears throat> you can't wait for your beliefs to change. You need to know. Um, how they need to change and then figure out a way to hold yourself accountable to evolving. Right. And so speaking of kind of understanding, let's say mindsets or seeing particular roles, you know, I mean, a lot of times what we get in popular culture is that to be the boss or to be some sort of executive, you know, you can't be a nice guy where they have the kind of mantra, nice guys finish last. So what would you say to somebody who is, who I guess is probably either, you know, kind of gunning for a position or is newly placed in the position and they think that way. They think that they kind of have to be self-absorbed and they have to be very dictatorial in their thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is often rooted in a mindset, just like you, you know, you, you're saying. So uh, sometimes that, uh, attitude and approach has worked very well for people and that makes it all the more difficult right if somebody throughout their career has been behaving that way and at the same time they're successful um, there's often not a lot of impetus to change it and so at the outset part of what needs to happen is to figure out is there any motivation to change it because you know, it's the proverbial, if the light bulb doesn't want to change, <laughs> it's not going to change. Right. Um, oftentimes, people of the kind, the dictatorial type that you're describing, actually, they really do want to change. They're in some kind of pain about it. They've alienated people. It's extremely stressful and time-consuming and draining to take that approach and not be able to basically get along with people. And especially as you move into leadership roles, bossing people around often just doesn't work. And people start to see the failures of that. Um, and not to sound too pessimistic about human nature, but they're not usually looking to make the change just so they can be nicer. They're often looking to make the change because they missed out on a promotion. They got a negative performance review they got a salary cut, or in some cases I've seen, they got fired. And all of a sudden, you know, they've had a 20 year run of amazing success, income going through the roof, and now all of a sudden they got fired. Uh, and in some cases, people are willing to slow down and take a look at that, what happened. And it is often, I'd say probably most of the time driven by these kind of interpersonal dynamics and the underlying belief system uh, about being collaborative versus dictatorial. And usually the highest level leaders are people who have figured out whether they really mean it or not, they have figured out how to be kind, generous, trustworthy, and, and collaborative. And there's more and more research that shows that organizations that uh, foster that kind of culture in the long term are more successful. It may not show up on their monthly or quarterly balance sheet, but if you look over the course of uh, years, right. they are doing better.
Right. And that's interesting because, um, so I, from what I know about narcissism is that it's pretty much rooted, in, not rooted in, but um, an aspect of it is short-term thinking. So the thing is like for narcissists, a lot of times they're successful because in the short term, people actually really like them, right? Mm -hmm. So they're charming, they're confident, they seem to know what they're doing and people kind of fall for it. And so what happens is obviously in the long term, I say, obviously, from our perspective, is that they end up ruining all of their relationships somewhere down the line. So I wonder, David, in your work with people, do you kind of help them see that even though in the short term, they get the things that they want, right? In the long term, what they're actually doing is probably sabotaging their lives, sabotaging their careers, sabotaging their relationships. I'd like to try to get out in front of that with people when possible. Hey, you know, you're being, <coughs> you're being really kind of disdainful and nasty to people. And at some point that's gonna come back to bite you. <clears throat> but if people don't have like concrete evidence of that yet, it's hard to get them to change. There's usually gotta be some pain point, mm -hmm. some evidence to them that their way of doing things hasn't worked. Uh, now, sometimes you can ask them to go back to their past. Yeah. What was this like when you were in high school or college? You know, were you the bully on the playground? How did that end up? So I, I will often try to get conversations with people going maybe in less threatening situations. Like how did that go in the past? What about in other jobs? How's it going in your family? Uh, to, to see if it can evoke some of the same uh, dynamic, but Narcissism is, is, is a tough one. We all have a certain degree of it. You know, we all have an ego. It, for all of us, it can be damaged. We all have our vulnerabilities. And that's often what underlies narcissism is people feel insecure, fearful in some way, inadequate. And then the narcissist, the expressed narcissism that comes out is in many cases a kind of a defense mechanism against that. There, there is this small percentage of narcissists who could also be classified as just sociopaths. Yeah. Um, and most of them end up getting their psychiatric treatment in prison. Yeah. Uh, but that's probably about 1% or less of narcissists. Most narcissists are you know, living out in the world, uh, like all of us. And like I said, we all have some of them. Um, to the degree that you can connect up with some of the vulnerability without shaming them, you may be able to start getting a conversation going uh, about how to be less insecure and more connected to other people. Fascinating. So um, would you do the same thing for someone who is not open to feedback? Like I, I can imagine there are many narcissists who do actually get negative feedback, but kind of have the blinders on and then yeah. sort of don't embrace it. And they just keep doing the same behaviors. Yeah. Yeah, well, and a lot of what I do in my executive coaching practice, which is sometimes harder to do on, in, on the psychiatry side, is to is to get a lot of feedback from people. So do you know 360 assessments where you know you might talk to six or eight or ten people to get their perspective. Um, I like doing those by interviews. There are also uh, qual quantitative online uh, rating systems that that can give people feedback. So the feedback is very important in coaching. Uh, and you're exactly right. There are some people with strong narcissistic dynamics that just can't take it in uh, or they'll nod because they think they should in response to the feedback, but then immediately go into explanations about why they were right and the other person was wrong. The other person didn't understand. They were just working really hard. The project needed to get done. Nobody else was doing it. You know, so you start hearing a lot of externalization and blame. Mm -hmm. That's a tough nut to crack. The usual approach I try to take there is to say, okay, well, that, that all sounds reasonable. And I wasn't there, so I don't know. So I'm not disputing whether or not it's true. Here's the question that, you have a, you know, how are you going to deal with your perception management problem? Because I just spoke to eight people who all are saying um, that you have this kind of problem. So at the very least, I think we can stipulate that you haven't convinced or persuaded them. You know, yep, you, you didn't get their vote. So you may be right, but you're going to lose the election. <laughs> um, 
you may be wrong and you're going to lose, lose the election also. But in this case, fine, you were right. You, 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 you were all over that. You're the best. You're the only one who can do it well. But why are these people thinking that of you? And then back to what we were saying earlier, is there any motivation or impetus to change that? Do you want to try to move the needle and have these people see you as more um, supportive and collaborative? Uh, that doesn't always work. And that sometimes takes uh, many sessions, weeks, months to get people to buy into the fact that it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's that you don't have buy-in or even respect from the people around you. So then is it that um, you're building rapport by essentially, these are not my words, but seeking first to understand then to be understood. So you'll say, okay, I see where you're coming from. Um, you'll make it clear to them that you're on the same page as them, but then you'll introduce this other thing like the feedback from other people in order to sort of get them to see like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe I should listen to what, um, you know, what you're saying. I'm really glad you asked that question because that, that hooks up with a, a fundamental uh, technique that I try to use in all of these situations, especially in executive coaching. And that has to do with uh, what I refer to as active inquiry, systematic, continued, open-ended questions. Not the kind of questions that are going to lead to a yes, no answer and kind of be conversation stoppers but really open-ended questions. Um, and you're exactly right. Um, even before doing a 360 assessment, like I was describing, I'd like to try to get to know the person as well as possible and kind of map out their belief system and their worldview. But even when giving the feedback, I try to use active inquiry as much as possible. So I might say, you know, most people I spoke with said that you're, you know, very impatient and you don't trust them to do their work. So you're always kind of micromanaging and it's very demoralizing, creating a lot of burnout on the team. Um, what's going on with that? What do you think they're perceiving? Uh, now, they're probably not going to give a very helpful answer at first, but it needs to be continued inquiry that will sometimes help the client in that case uh, have some kind of insight that's meaningful. They, because it's very difficult for them to absorb something from uh, you know, somebody in the organization or an external coach like me, it's gotta be internalized. So it needs to be very respectful. Uh, my questions, uh, they're open-ended and they really are focused on learning. I don't really know. Maybe the other people are wrong. Maybe they are underperformers. Maybe he, uh, he shouldn't trust them. That's entirely possible. So I try to stay agnostic, no hypothesis, and ask, ask questions. So the questions may proceed. What's going on with that? Let's talk about a specific person. What do you think led her to, to say that? What do you think might change her perception of that? Um, you know, have you worked with anybody like this in the past where it shifted? What did you do? Uh, so continued series of inquiry questions. So just giving feedback, everybody said that your X, Y, and Z is really not going to be effective long-term. It may be the starting point. Here's the feedback, but now tell me what you think. And then you get into a, bring the stress level down with the person who's getting the feedback and get a conversation going where they may have some uh, self-discovery moments. Right. And that's, I mean, that's where philosophy comes in. That's essentially Socratic questioning. So a lot of Absolutely. what you're doing is, yeah. right, right, right. And I'm assuming sort of that's where the philosophical counseling come in, where you, where you pretty much, where you tell the person like, hey, look, you know, I have maybe some idea about what's going on with you, but I'd rather understand it from your perspective. And obviously the person from that perspective feels respected and heard. Socrates is kind of the, you know, the hero in all of this mm -hmm. at the same time. I'll put a little of my own narcissism out there. I think this process is even better uh, <laughs> in certain ways. Uh, Socrates, you know, at least in some of his dialogues, he already knows the answer, mm -hmm. right? And he's trying to lead, uh, this is not true in all the dialogues, but in some of them, he's trying to lead the interlocutor into the position that, that Socrates already has the insight about. Mm -hmm. um, and it is, a very, it is a very effective technique. 
Um, in, in, in the kind of inquiry I'm talking about, and again, a lot of this is drawn from the Socratic tradition. It has to stay very focused on learning mm-hmm. uh, because we all come with our assumptions. I've got my own assumptions about this person is too narcissistic. They shouldn't be. Everyone thinks they're mean. They should be nicer, right? That, th- those are those may be some of my beliefs. I, and again, in some cases they're probably right. Uh, and, and, but not in all cases, and they do, they do have to be set aside. Uh, but I, I'm glad you brought up Socrates. I think he really, at least in the Western tradition, is the inspiration for trying to co-construct some kind of truth or, or solution mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's meaningful and that isn't just mechanistic, but links up with something something bigger. Right. And I mean, I think we all have to be really careful with our thinking. So I can even give you a personal example. So I'm a psychotherapist. And um, obviously, a lot of what I do is also Socratic questioning. And so there was a session that I had with a client of mine where we were trying to help her decide whether or not she was going to move out of state and she was going to buy a bed and breakfast and just completely kind of uproot her life or whether she was going to move back to New York City as she was staying with her parents in another state. So I remember the way I was thinking of it. And Danny Kahneman rang a bell because I was thinking, my God, man, the biases are so obvious. And so we kind of made this map and we sort of just talking about it. And so we decided, or I rather decided initially that the move for her was to go buy this bed and breakfast in Vermont, right? So then she said, you know, I'm still feeling really anxious about it. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, here we go. She's avoiding, my light bulb goes up. Here it is. She's doing it again. She's avoiding, right? So next week we have another session. And then, so she's like, hey, you know, I really, I can't kick the anxiety. I just, I don't know. I don't know if this is a good idea. I'm like, all right. I mean, I mean, we could talk this through, but I'm pretty sure that you're avoiding, right? <laughs> and then, so what we do is we create this really, um, like a little bit more complicated than the normal version of this. We create the, this modified pros and cons list. And so we would have, like, let's say we would have option A, which is move into move to Vermont and buy the better breakfast. Then option B is go back to New York City, and we would have the pros and cons for each. And then we would weigh the importance of, let's say, each pro and each con. And then we would add up all the pros, add up all the cons, subtract one from the other, and then we would compare the two decisions. So unbelievably, it was actually not even close. So New York won by, I think, something like 33 to minus one. And I was just all both of us were like, holy shit. And I said, yeah, I know. And I said, remember when I told you that I make these stupid cognitive errors, too? It's a, this is it. This is like a great example of this. And so in my mind, what was going on as you know, in retrospect now is that I was focusing on all of the positives from one decision and all of the negatives from the other. And I was pretty much comparing apples to oranges. And I thought, yeah, yeah, no, this is definitely the right thing to do. So just for me, it was so, so amazing that as it's therapists, you know, psychiatrists, right? Whomever, we have these thinking errors that all of us are sort of prone to. And you can get a little bit hubris about it thinking like, oh, well, I know this person, you know, I've been seeing them for over a year now. I already know what's going on. I have a scheme of what's going on with them. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to even be right most of the time. It's yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really great example. And, you know, we all have the biases we've all got down uh, that road, the New York versus Vermont road that you, uh-huh. that you described so nicely. It, it sounds like a great pandemic story about whether to say New York City or uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's actually that's where it stemmed from. Yeah, because she yeah. wanted to. So she left New York City to go back to live with her parents for some time, and then she was thinking like, what do I do now? Do I actually go back home and do I go back to my apartment, or do I start this new life elsewhere? Yeah, yep. Uh, pros and cons both ways. Uh-huh. Um, that sounds encouraging for uh, for New York City. I'm sure uh, Mayor de Blasio would like to hear that story. <laughs> <laughs> we'll tag him when the episode comes <laughs> You've passed that part of the interview along to him. Yeah. Uh, no, but it's 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 a it's a it's a great example of why it's so important for us to remind ourselves continuously to stay in inquiry and learning mode with clients. Uh, and in some ways, the entire process you described sounds like it was an inquiry and learning process that led to a, you know, led to the right outcome. She's she's back in New York, but part of the way that decision evolved possibly is is it was a deep exploration of Vermont and even maybe barking up the wrong tree. Um, uh, this sounds like it was a good outcome. There was nothing irreversible about it. In some cases, the decisions may be higher stakes. Uh, you know, like, you know, should I get 
divorced or not, uh, you know, or other, other like really major life decisions. I mean, even that's reversible, but uh, some are obviously more extreme decisions uh, than others. So the way I heard that is that the whole thing was an inquiry and learning process, but at the same time, right within the process, um, there may have been things that you and she can, you know, could have done. And um, again, I apply this to myself all the time with clients. Uh, you know, how do you slow down and instead of coming to a conclusion, maybe quickly that quicker than should be, ask another question. Right. Like, I, I think so many of us are solution-oriented people. We've been trained professionally. We're experts. We're consultants, we're supposed to give advice. Mm -hmm. uh, that's in some ways what the professional role is. But there's the question of how quickly and definitively to give it. Right. Uh, and, and one of the things I find, both in executive coaching, I also train and certify executive coaches. And in the training program I run, uh, with, you know, with professional people that are you know, transitioning from being CEOs or HR people, all different, or people from psychotherapy, uh, the, the hardest thing and, and, and what most of the certification program focuses on is delay advice giving mm -hmm. and keep delaying it. And within the context of the training program, that's almost all we do. Mm -hmm. You so badly want to give advice. You already know the answer. You know somebody they should speak with. You know the book they should read. You know the school they should go to. You know which state they should go. You know you're the expert, but the uh, the exercise in the training is don't give the advice. Ask another open-ended question and another and another and another. Um, uh, at a certain point, yes, as uh, as professionals and experts, we we sometimes do need to get to the point of actually giving real advice. But it, it can be very difficult to uh, to slow it down and delay it and really empower the other person to figure it out. Right, and interestingly too, with, the, with that person in that case, so she actually told me after we made the decision, she's like, magically my anxiety went away. So her anxiety was super spot on the entire time. I was obviously wrong. So it, it's like, it's, it's so wild kind of how, I guess how it works and how thinking sort of affects you, right? And sometimes I have, um, well, I mean, this is the best piece of advice I guess I've ever been giving in terms of cognitive biases. So somebody, I don't even remember who it was. So, but somebody told me, they said, look, whether you're being quick-witted or not, either way, you're actually taking the same amount of time in the end to make the decision if you're making a good one. So the understanding was you can either sort of think things through and make a decision Decision in the long run over whatever span of time, or you can make a really quick decision and then you have to go back and re-examine the choice and why you made it. So one way or another, you're actually taking this whole length of time to make a There's decision. There's no way to short circuit that process. Yeah, right. Right. Exactly. Right. You're going to have to, it's going to have to play itself out and you're probably better off trying to be as patient as possible and be right. careful not to short circuit. But even if you do, okay, well, it's usually not calamitous. Mm -hmm. um, and David, so what do you think it is? How come you think in our culture, like being quick-witted is so valuable? Yeah, that's, that, it's a, it's a great, that's a really great question. Um, it, it seems like it, it, it's some indicator of how smart you are. And we, we are uh, in this kind of culture and economy, the the currency is ideas and rapid thinking and decision-making. That's what gets people ahead. It's not, you brought up Kahneman, it's, it's more the, uh, I guess this is the system one thinking rather than system two, which is the, the slow deliberative thinking. Uh, it, it's more rewarded for, I'm sure there's a variety of cultural reasons, but also a lot of economic reasons seems that people are, who are quick-witted, making rapid decisions, and in many cases, um, succeeding as a result. But if you look underneath that, there, there are as many stories of people failing uh, through, uh, through impulsivity. Uh, but it, it, I think it's absolutely true that we have become a very fast society. I'm sure social media has only compounded that. Uh, there are you're rewarded the dopamine system is is firing away when you're when you're when you're tweeting we see it at the very highest levels 
that there's there there are rewards to to being quick-witted, and yet on the longer-term side, there are obviously significant, uh, even dangerous uh, risks around it. Uh, but the you know the the uh, how we interpret anxiety is uh, is is really interesting in this regard. It's just like you were describing with your uh, client, Vermont versus New York, mm -hmm. you can immediately jump to seeing anxiety as a symptom that needs to be treated. Right. Whether it's with medications or cognitive therapy or behavioral changes or mindfulness, anxiety is bad. Mm -hmm. It's something that needs to be removed. And sometimes that's true. It can be very destructive. Uh, it's at the same time, equally uh, likely that it's just an indicator or a signal that something needs to be looked at a bit more. Yeah. You know, you're about to take that job, you're about to take that move. Now I'm so anxious, okay, well you can treat it with medication or therapy, but well, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's not the right job. <laughs> Let's slow down and think about that. So I, I do think we uh, in the helping professions, uh, and I, this may relate in some ways to the quick-witted thing, right? We like to make quick decisions. Oh, you're anxious, here's some ideas about what to do. Here's a self-help book, here's, here's some clonopin. Mm -hmm. But it, may, it, it really is worth asking, what is this telling us? I've sometimes said to people, the anxiety here is your friend because you haven't thought this through fully. Let's think it through. The anxiety is slowing you down so you can make a, have more conversation. Plus, it's almost as if you're, you're meant to experience anxiety. Like whenever you're confronted with a new reality, some, something outside of the realm of what you're used to, of course, you're going to experience some form of resistance, right? Mm -hmm. And if, let's say, um, a client or an audience member who's listening to the podcast, let's say they know every time I encounter something new, I'm actually supposed to feel some level of anxiety or resistance. That may be an indicator then that they don't necessarily have to treat that anxiety. Maybe they have to space it, so to speak, or uh, take time to think things clearly. Right, manage right. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. It's it, no, it's a great point. I mean, there there are times I've said to people, even with anxiety disorders, like you don't seem anxious enough. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is a really big deal. You know, again, you're moving across the country, you're taking a new job, you're. Uh, getting married to somebody or having a child in a situation where you're not still 100% sure about, maybe you should be more anxious. What's good? Where did the anxiety go? Mm -hmm. uh, because it, it could be a, a thick wall of denial, avoidance, and, and, and resistance. So the anxiety is actually quashed and it looks like you no longer, you have a well-treated anxiety problem. Mm -hmm. No anxiety disorder at all. Mm -hmm. Whereas what you've really got going on is, um, is repression and avoidance. Mm -hmm. um, so again, we got to keep an open mind about that and ask the right kind of questions and promote the kind of conversations that will uncover that. Yeah, because I wish, um, this, this is going years back, I, I wish I knew somebody like you who teaches what you do because uh, there was a point in time when, I'd, I'd, this is very valuable, I, I learned about um, being present to the moment, right? Don't never resist the now. Be in the moment, right? And I, I, I do stand by that. I stand by it wholeheartedly. However, um, I misinterpreted it in a way. Uh, for example, I thought that anytime I experienced any sort of inner uh, dialogue or or uh, rumination or anxiety, it had to be quelled, right? Uh, I, I wasn't allowed to experience it. Otherwise, I'm not in the moment. And the goal is always be in the moment. Therefore, you know, if you're in the moment, you're living life successfully. Well, mm -hmm. what that ended up doing for me was I ended up not allowing myself to think things through for a <laughs> while and try to dwell in these states of um, ecstatic <laughs> bliss, so to speak. Bliss, right. Um, but yeah, I was avoiding the problem. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, even, you know, can be, it may be anxious things that get avoided, but uh, you know, sometimes even more powerful emotions, rage, hatred, you know, anger, extreme levels of fear. Um, 
People sometimes just disconnect from them. Mindfulness is a wonderful thing, but it can be misused. Psychotherapy is a wonderful thing, but it can be misused. Um, marijuana, <laughs> prescribed medications. People find all kinds of ways, biochemically, spiritually, therapeutically, to get away from noxious emotional states. But often to the point that you're describing where the problem is avoided, kick the can down the road and it can, you know, give me a problem later. Yeah. Sounds like you got through just fine. <laughs> Working on it. Working. <laughs> work. Well, that's, a, I mean, but that's one of the nice things about this. It usually does work itself out. And in the kind of, um, you know, work I try to do, try to help speed that along a bit. Uh, and uh, help people go a little bit deeper. Yet, life is short. If you can, if you can avoid some of the pain, and get to some of the deeper truths about what you're really thinking and feeling, and what you really want to do in the world, what really is valuable to you, what you want to contribute. Well, the sooner the better. Uh, and I, I see the process I do uh, with clients in the, in the, you know, the various um, professional situations I work in, mm -hmm. as trying to nudge it along. Uh, in, in, in some ways I try to, you know, in some ways I have like grandiose fantasies about what I do. And in other ways I realize, you know, the, the person that I'm working with probably would have gotten there on their own anyway. Sure. Uh, and it's kind of an honor and a privilege and a lot of fun to maybe help them get there a little sooner and with a little less pain. Uh, like Yalom, you're a fe fellow traveler. A fellow traveler, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. That's a term we often use. And interestingly, I mean, I don't know if, so this is my hypothesis. I'm sure it's a lot of people's hypothesis. Um, so I, let me know what you think, David. So I often think that when it comes to looking at people's values and the way that they're living their lives, it's often not only terrifying, but also causes a lot of misery. So I think where a lot of times where we get stuck in these little disputes or, you know, kind of these petty thoughts about different things going on in life, whatever, whether it's, you know, some kind of like uh, some dispute going on with your neighbor or um, some interaction that you had with a coworker that was wasn't really, at least to the outside observer, a big deal. It kind of seems like all of these things are like this brick wall keeping you from actually looking at the way you've been living and looking at the way you've been cho making choices and looking at the way you probably haven't been too responsible for your life. Do you ever sense that? Uh, largely within myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mostly, That's honest. Yeah. Within myself. Uh -huh. Yeah, you know, I, I mean... I, I think for so many years, even decades, I was running around, you know, just trying to, I mean, a lot of it was focused on education and some of it was on travel. I, I was just doing so many things, right. having children. I'm so glad I did. They're wonderful. But so it's so easy to throw yourself into um, distractions, right? And they can turn out to be wonderful things. Hopefully you pick the right kind of distractions. But they are, or they can also serve as a way of avoiding what you know what's really going on inside you, and what you really most um, value. And so, you know, I made mistakes along the way as well. Where if, uh, you know, if I had maybe slowed down a little, I might have ended up ended up with the uh, you know great kids that I have, but um, maybe avoided some other um, uh, errors in you know whether it's personal life, professional life. Um, so I, I, I do try to keep it a little bit slower now. I'm still doing a lot, but I feel like in many ways I'm more productive now because I've gone into a little more of a Kahneman system, system one thinking. It's not as, uh, or system two, I think is, it's actually the uh, slower, more deliberative thinking, which, um, which is an important complement to the, to the more rapid impulsive. Uh, so yes, and I do. So I see it within myself, and I try to look at it, uh, and I do see it in other people, and also just a little bit of slowing down. And I think that's a lot of what the sessions I do. Again, whether it's a psychotherapy session, or a philosophical counseling session, or an executive coaching session, they're all intended in some ways to kind of step out of your immediate life, take a little bit of a meta view of it, metacognition meta life examination and, and maybe, maybe tweak your decisions a bit in, in a way that's uh, 
consistent with your values and your vision and what you want to uh, contribute to the world. Yeah. And I mean, that, in the, that's what the sessions really are in many ways. Yeah. And I mean, going into system one thinking, I find that a lot of times why people are afraid of taking responsibility for their lives is because of overgeneralization. They think that because I've made these these decisions when I was in my 20s, um, you know, I was doing this or I was thinking about this while I was in college. Now it's over. Like, what am I going to do with my life now? So instead of, you know, introspecting and thinking, well, you know, what are my next steps going to be? I'd rather not think about it at all because then I'd have to admit this big unchainable or um, let's say, um, yeah, I guess unchangeable is a good word. So unchangeable mistake that I can't turn back from, even though it's obviously, I mean, going into system two thinking, it doesn't work that way. I mean, most of us lead long lives. And I've known people who went back to school in their 50s. I've known people who went back into to school in their 60s. So it's like, but a lot of times people think it's hopeless because they think, again, the beginning of your life is where you make all of these major decisions. And now the rest of your life is just suffering the consequences. Yeah, you're stuck. And you know, I mean, that's where it's in philosophical counseling, you know, existentialist philosophy about, you know, um, ongoing choice, even mm -hmm. radical choice still, uh, still plays a role. Take, take responsibility for your choices. You're not that stuck. There may be certain things you can't do. You might not be able to go back and be a ballerina or an NBA star that you may have been physically determined that you could never have done those things. But they're going back to school in your 50s, sure. For most most people could do that. Uh, and you know, people are very, very stuck in uh, in these mindsets. And again, that's that's what this kind of work can sometimes do, pry some of that loose a bit, get people challenge people to realize that they're not fully determined. It's not a fully deterministic universe uh, in, in the way it's so easy to begin to see. And ever. Yeah, and, right. right. And I noticed, by the way, that you and Ryan Stalzer do a podcast together. Uh, I believe it's called uh, Think Talk Create. Think Talk Create. Yes. Uh, what What led to the creation of that podcast? Um, is it that you wanted to have a a bigger impact, or? Uh, well, that, yes, that that was certainly part of it. But on a more mundane level, um, it, it, we started it in. I think it was toward the end of March of this year when we weren't getting to see each other anymore and we wanted to stay connected and be, and be doing some work uh, uh, in the service of our overall ideas and the building of strategy of mind. And we've been uh, working on a book that is uh, hopefully gonna be coming out next year on a lot of these themes. So that was what kind of drove the podcast and, and some of the initial episodes were focused on uh, how to think and work and deal with the COVID changes and hopefully in the service of you know, uh, thriving. So the think, talk, create process is along the lines of a lot of what we've been talking about so far. Slow down, do some self-reflection, ask the right questions, have a dialogue. You know, that's the, the second step is the talk process. Have a good dialogue uh, around this kind of open inquiry. Uh, and that's what leads on to change, creativity, innovation. And, and we do that over and over with clients that we work with. And I'm just curious, what's been your favorite thing about podcasting so far? About podcasts? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I love, I, I mean, I love this kind of uh, freeform dialogue. I think, I think it's just, just before we were getting on the podcast, I, you know, I said, well, I didn't prepare everything mm -hmm. I I did it either. Life is, is the preparation. Yeah, I did. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah, I did it. For you. <laughs> but I, I would like think always, I like to outsource preparation. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that that kind of makes it more authentic. I mean, like we get to have this conversation where I'm genuinely curious. And a lot of it is because I didn't really look into you that much. And I mean, we had some sort of background, obviously, into like, you know, your work and who you were, what your ideas were. But for the most part, I said, I could just ask him. I, he's coming on our show. I could ask him all of these questions. Yeah, no, well, that, that's how I like doing things. And uh, yeah, I would, I'll even go so far as to admit that with many clients, especially when I'm first meeting them, I, I try not to do too much research. Uh, you know, I, I, I work for uh, I work for a company that will you know um, you know sometimes send me new potential executive coaching clients. They send the thumbnail sketch, um, and I could certainly Google them and read their LinkedIn. Uh, 
uh, or sometimes I have more voluminous information about them. Uh, and I try to do just enough prep that I, I don't know what ballpark we're in. But the, the more information you absorb up front, the more the cognitive biases make yes. sense. You've already, whether it's conscious, subconscious, whatever, you've come to certain conclusions that probably are not warranted. So uh, I, I do like the podcast format where you're talking in an area of interest and experience, but it's, it's relatively free form and focused on inquiry and dialogue. In some ways, it's a reflection of uh, what I try to do with my clients. Yeah, yeah, and I would say the same thing here too, sort of. So a lot of what I do here is kind of indicative of what I do in my work as a therapist too. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be as deep as it is in therapy because, I mean, you know, it's definitely going to be more personal. But a lot of like these free flow conversations are exactly what the therapy room is like. So, yeah, 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 yeah it's, it's pretty nice. All right, I mean, this was for me, it, and I'm sure for you too. This is such a great show. <laughs> so Alan, final questions before we go, man? Uh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where, where could we find you? Uh, I have a, a website, which is my first and last name.com, David Brendel, B-R-E-N-D-E-L.com. And that, uh, that includes information on my executive coaching, my psychiatry, philosophical counseling services, and links to other things from there, mm-hmm. and a blog. So davidbrendel.com. And where can we find you on social media? Uh, I'm on Twitter, mm-hmm. and that's and on and on LinkedIn. So those are the two primary ones that I use. Awesome. And I'm assuming for Twitter, it's your your name and the it's dr. A, it's at Dr. David Brendel. So dr. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, David. Thank you so much for coming. Thank on. you so much. Thank you so much for having me, both of you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Take care, man. Take care. Bye. All right. That was awesome. Yeah, that was really fun. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, guys, uh, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. (laughs) (laughs) And then on YouTube. And then you can also find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com under the STM podcast section. And also be sure to check out the newest episodes of Heart of an Outlaw. I know Andy's doing an episode tonight, a really dope one. And then also follow Andy O'Farrell and then follow Vegas Media Designs, who takes care of all of our artwork on Instagram. All right. And by tonight, you mean October 7th? Oh, sorry. Sorry. October 7th. Yeah. Which I guess doesn't matter. So you guys will be able to see that when this comes out on Sunday. Yeah. All right. See you guys. See you guys. Uh, Thank you so much for watching. See you next time.